I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Chip Granditz. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 23rd, 2013. Coming up, we look at how pain in the body shows up as pain in the brain through a map of the brain that literally lights up with pain. We realized that the map actually could predict how much pain somebody's feeling in a new person. We don't have an individual signature for. That makes it much more generalizable. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. It sure is cold and snowy again. But overall, gardeners know that there are now more plants from warmer areas that survive in Colorado. The same thing is happening on the global level, according to a new study from Boulder's Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences. Irina Malstein is the lead author of the study, and she says that growing zones are changing fast. Our key finding in our study is the more the globe warms, the faster the climate zones are going to shift. While this may be nice if you want to watch a southern flower bloom this summer in Colorado, for wild plants and animals, it's harder to adjust. This issue is usually made public by an impact community that shows drowning polar bears in the Arctic Circle and pine trees dying due to pine beetle growth. Malstein says her team brings the opportunity for the climate calculation community to talk more with the impact community. What we are really trying to do was to reach out and not just have the climate scientists separate and then the impact community separate. I think it would be really good if we would talk more to each other. Over 30 different climate zones are found on Earth, each with its own set of plants and animals that may have trouble adapting if climate zones change fast. Man's best friend. Eats every Cheerio that a toddler drops. He lovingly licks your face after chewing on a dug-up bone. He's the big-hearted pal who everyone wants to give a pat, so it's no surprise that your dog is a champion at collecting family microbes. That's according to a new study published last week by CU Boulder scientist Rob Knight. To learn more about families and their pets, in the Knight Lab used Q-tip-like cotton swabs to sample microbes on family members, including those on the forehead, the hands, feces, or tongue. For the family member known as the dog, Rob Knight says getting a sample of tongue microbes is pretty simple because dogs like to lick the cotton swab. It's really easy to get an oral sample in most cases and to do it consistently because the surface of the, of the tongue is a pretty good landmark. And it's covered in bacteria. And it's also really easy to get from, say, your kid or from your pet. And actually, the hard part was usually keeping the dog's tongue off the rest of the swabs when we were trying to sample other stuff, right? In the 60 families Night Lab sampled, one out of every three had a dog. In those households with the dog, people had more microbes in common with the dog than any other family member. So a husband usually had more microbes that matched his dogs than he had that matched his wife. A mom shared more microbes with the family dog than she did with her baby. Knight says this new information might provide clues about how microbes pass between different living things, plus how to stop the bad ones and protect the beneficial ones. Knight says it's bad for our health to simply nuke 
all the microbes. But that's effectively what we've been doing to our own microbes for the last century and figuring out how to get away from that paradigm and, uh, and to promote the beneficial microbes I think is going to be really important. So projects that let us find out about all those beneficial microbes are really critical at the moment. He adds that when a family has a dog and all its microbes, the humans are less likely to suffer from allergies, asthma, and autoimmune disease. Knight says you can help in the effort to understand our microbes by contributing to his American Gut Project. You can find out more at howonearthradio.org. When contemplating the Big Bang, have you ever wondered what it would sound like? Thanks to Professor Emeritus John G. Kramer of the University of Washington in Seattle, How on Earth is able to bring you the sound of the Big Bang. Professor Kramer's newest high-fidelity 2013 version. This is not an actual recording, of course, but a simulation produced analyzing the cosmic microwave background radiation, electromagnetic echoes of the Big Bang that pervade the universe to this day. It is a high-fidelity simulation using the latest cosmic background radiation data gathered by an observation spacecraft known as Planck and launched by the European Space Agency in May of 2009. The simulation represents the first 760,000 years of the evolution of the universe. According to the Planck analysis, the emission profile, that is the amplitude of the Big Bang, peaked at 379,000 years, fading off to 60% intensity after another 110,000 years and gradually fading off until, well, it still is fading off. Back when the Big Bang was really loud, the universe was expanding quickly and so becoming more of a bass instrument, stretching the sound waves and thereby lowering the frequency as the sound progresses. Purists may point out that Professor Kramer has made a few alterations for your enjoyment and convenience. The true sound frequencies are not in the range that humans can hear, nor can we expect even the most avid listeners to stay for a full 760,000-year presentation. So we sped it up a little. Well, about 100 million billion billion times. Professor Kramer invites science fans and artists to check out and play around with various wave files of the Big Bang available on his website at the University of Washington. Google Kramer with a C and Big Bang Sound, or follow the links we will provide at howonearthradio.org. tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, you feel physical pain. Terrible sunburn? Pain. A muscle cramp? Pain. In each case, you know it's pain. But how a body senses the pain has been elusive. Surgeons have tried to cut out what they think of as the brain's pain center. That often doesn't work, and it has side effects. Pain-killing drugs? Sometimes they help. Sometimes they cause addiction. Understanding the brain's pain circuits might help scientists find a better way to deal with pain. 
Last week, CU Boulder researchers took a step in that direction by publishing a magnetic resonance imaging map that they believe shows the signature of physical brain response within the brain. The lead researcher on this project is Tor Wager. Wager is the director of the Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Colorado Boulder. Let's listen as Wager talks with How on Earth's Shelley Schlender. Tor Wager, where in the brain do we feel pain? It's been a mystery. Pain is a very complicated experience. We know that it's generated in the brain, and there is no one spot in the brain that causes us to feel pain. It's very likely a complicated pattern of activity that's distributed across many different brain systems and circuits. And so what we've done in our study is we've developed a method for finding a pattern across the brain that is diagnostic of how much physical pain somebody is feeling. Tor Wager, you just said physical pain, and we'll get back to that because that's different from emotional pain. But right now, you've got a picture on your computer screen that shows a gray brain, but it has some yellow dot areas and some purple areas and they really are pretty much all over the place. The background image, the gray image, is a reconstructed actual brain assessed with magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI. And then overlaid on that are colors. And you see these colors popping up in brain scans, in media, all all the time, really. The colors mean different things in different studies. In this particular case, what the colors reflect is a signature pattern that is diagnostic of how much physical pain somebody's feeling. The areas that you've marked with either yellow or purple tend to show up in people consistently when they're feeling pain. Right. So these areas show up. There's a whole circuit. It's a pattern across a number of brain regions, all of which we know play a role in pain in, in various ways. In our brains, it isn't just one place that things happen. Our brains are like a city where things get relayed from one place to the other. That's right. There are billions and billions of neurons, and how they communicate with each other and the exact signals they pass back and forth is really at the core of, of our thoughts and our feelings and our experiences. And so what we're trying to do is measure activity across those billions of neurons on average and detect signals that are sensitive and specific to particular kinds of emotional experiences and particular kinds of pain. And so in this case, what we have is a pattern, and the idea is it's kind of a a template. If we can apply that to an individual person's brain data, and the greater the magnitude of the signal in that pattern, then the more pain we're predicting that they feel. In this case, your diagram says that you created this pain map by using heat that you applied to somebody's arm, and then you measured what areas heated up in their brain as they said whether it felt painful or not. That's right. So we apply a safe and non-damaging level of heat to the arm. So no third-degree burns here. No burns. We use a thermode. It's a little, essentially a plastic end plate with a thermocouple behind it, so that lets us create the experience of pain in a very controlled way. I can't help but wonder if you did this with a burn victim, if you would expect the same areas to light up only more. It's a great question. So what we have here was trained on heat pain, and it's not a measure of clinical pain. We expect that clinical pain is a much more complicated set of processes, and different types of clinical pain are different and involve different brain systems. You mean that There's the emotional pain, which is different from physical pain. And then within physical pain, there's pain from heat on your forearm. There's pain from a blow to your head 
all of these may be different kinds of pain? Yeah, pain isn't, isn't just one thing. And people who suffer from a number of pain conditions, you could have a, a nerve injury that has caused the brain to miswire. And so you can experience pain spontaneously in the absence of any input from the body. You can experience a hypersensitivity to what would normally be touch that's non-painful, light touch on the arm, let's say, and it becomes excruciatingly painful. We really need to understand more about what's happening in the brain that creates those experiences. Tor Wager, is the importance of what you've done here that you've identified pain, big pain, P-A-I-N, or is it that you've identified a way to start analyzing how this pain signature shows up so that maybe the nerve pain signature might be different, but you could use the same tools to do it? Right. What, what we've done is we've identified a signature of a particular ingredient of pain or pain that's coming up from the body. These signals are, are not all of pain. They're really mixed with other kinds of signals about what the significance of pain is if you're experiencing pain in, in real life in a clinical context. And all of these other processes can combine with signals that are coming up from the body to create an overall experience of clinical pain. Pain, why do we need to understand all of the different ways that pain can show up? We need to understand the brain basis of pain because the brain is what creates that experience of pain. Many, many people suffer from pain that goes beyond the useful signal that's coming up from the body. It's out of control, essentially, and that causes a tremendous amount of suffering. Much of that suffering could be preventable, avoidable, if we can really understand the way the different brain systems are working together to create that experience and how the treatments that we have are impacting the brain in various ways. Phantom limb is a pain that most people know about or have heard about, where if somebody has their leg amputated, they always feel like the leg has just been amputated. The pain never goes away. That's right. That's one of the examples of how pain can be dissociated from the input coming up from the body. So what I think we've developed here is a measure that is sensitive to one particular kind of pain, uh, one ingredient of a more complicated pain experience like phantom limb pain. And what that gives us is a way of testing uh, whether different kinds of clinical pain conditions involve this particular system more or less, and whether different kinds of interventions for pain, different treatments for pain, affect this system or they affect other systems of the brain that might be contributing to pain in other ways. What is distinctive about this pain map that you've made for heat pain? What are the areas that fire up when things are fiery on your arm? It's a map that includes all of the regions that we might expect as physiologists who study pain. The areas that are colored yellow, if you get more activity in a person in those areas, you're predicting more pain. You know, so some of the areas are these evolutionarily ancient areas in the brainstem uh, that we know play a very important role in pain in, in animals and in humans. Uh, those project to areas of the cortex, like the anterior cingulate is one area that, that shows up a lot in scientific studies. The anterior cingulate cortex is one of these regions that we really associate with the badness of pain, the suffering aspects of pain in particular. For years and years, surgeons have tried to cut out the anterior cingulate pieces of it to relieve intractable pain. But what's interesting about this, in, in a sense, is the anterior cingulate will light up, so to speak, in response to pain, 
but it'll also light up in response to any number of different things. You know, a difficult math problem will activate the anterior cingulate, or looking at a, a, a nasty movie or picture, or, or even the face of a friend uh, will activate the anterior cingulate cortex. I guess what you're saying is the, the anterior cingulate, which was a target for just slice it out if someone has pain, has a few other jobs it's been doing too. Exactly. We have another recent paper where we looked across thousands and thousands of studies, and the most frequently activated area of the brain across any different type of thing that you're doing is the anterior cingulate. And that's what people have been cutting out to get rid of pain. Oh, dear. That's right. We see this whole set of regions that's activated when people are in pain, but it's also activated when people are doing other stuff. And so the real question for us is, can we devise a, a signature pattern that really tracks physical pain but doesn't respond to anything that's salient for you or anything that, that's emotionally evocative for you? And in fact, in this study, it seems like you've done that, that this particular signature is not something that lights up when you think about the day that your mom forgot your fifth birthday. Exactly. So what we think we've identified is a pattern within and across these regions that really tracks physical pain in a way that's, that's specific. And that was really surprising to us initially because I really, I didn't initially, I think we were going to be able to have the kind of resolution to, to find a specific signal. From our own experience, just as people, we kind of know that there's a difference between physical pain and emotional pain, because if a woman thinks about childbirth, she doesn't immediately start crying if she had a painful delivery. But on the other hand, she might start crying if she thinks about the pain that happened when her father died. Exactly. So uh, we, you know, we, we know introspectively that emotional pain and physical pain are different things. We can tell them apart. We don't confuse them one for the other. But at the same time, both of them are experiences that can really stick with us, especially emotional pain and especially the social pain of rejection and loss can stick with us for a very, very long time and it can have an enormous impact on our lives. Physical pain is different. When it's actual physical pain, you don't remember 10 years from now and go, oh my gosh, that hurts so much and shriek in pain as you think about somebody punching you. That's right. I think physical pain seems to be particularly hard to imagine vividly, and it's hard to empathize with in others. It's hard to see the reality of somebody else's pain. And I think that that is what underlies many of the problems that we have in, in treating other people's pain and responding to it. One of the ideas about why we might need some objective measures that can corroborate pain is to help confirm or provide a, a visible indicator that somebody is really experiencing a great deal of pain. Oh, because sometimes everybody says, you can't be feeling pain. That wouldn't hurt me. And somebody's feeling real physical pain. That's right. Many, many people have, have injuries and they're in a great deal of pain and they're not always believed or, or taken as seriously as they need to be taken. The hope is that by providing other kinds of objective indicators, we can corroborate people's pain. It's really important to say we can never disconfirm somebody's pain. We can't, we can't look at somebody's brain and say, ah, you're lying, you must not really be in pain. Uh, and, and the reason for that is everybody's brain is different. So if, if your pain signature matches what we have here, we can confirm that this looks like pain. But you might have a different neurophysiology, right? And, and you might have pain that's being generated through a different system. But, you know, Tor Wager, this makes me wonder whether once you understand this and once this is easier and quicker to do, then you could wire somebody up and see what their pain signature is for their brain 
based on something like this so that you could fine-tune it a little bit and make an individual pain map for a person to see what lights up in them. We started off, actually, with this project uh, doing that, doing individualized pain maps. But then we realized that the map actually could predict how much pain somebody's feeling in a new person who, who, who we don't have a, an individual signature for. Oh. That makes it, yeah, that makes it much more generalizable, right? <laughs> so you started out saying, well, we'll do individual pain maps, and instead you looked at the pain maps and you said, hmm, this person's pain map looks a lot like that person's, and that person's looks a lot similar to... We humans are more alike than we thought. What was surprising to us is that the signature for this type of pain is surprisingly conserved across individual people. What also is interesting is that we, we really think we have a measure of a particular pattern within these regions that respond to lots of things, but that's, that's, that's sensitive specifically to physical pain. And that pattern is also conserved across individual people. So that lets us feed in data from from new individuals and and make a prediction that we expect to be accurate. This also might be useful perhaps for drug application. I'm thinking of one of the most highly abused prescription drugs in the world. Will I say it right, though? Oxycontin? Is that it? Oxycontin. Yeah, one of the opioid family. Oxycontin and morphine are somewhat known for, in fact, somewhat infamous. If they're given for real physical pain, they don't cause as much of an addictive quality as if there's an underlying emotional pain that's driving the pain. If a Vietnam War vet actually had a terrible wound and was given morphine, then they could pretty easily get off of the morphine afterward. But if instead there is some terrible emotional tragedy that they'd gone through as well, it wasn't going to work. With OxyContin, it's often given for emotional pain, and it is a very dangerous drug. Could it be that this might help distinguish what kind of pain somebody is suffering so that these kind of misapplications of drugs might be less common? That's the hope. The the way our tool could be used, our brain signature could be used, is to determine the relative contribution to pain from this body-driven pain system and contributions from other systems of the brain that might encode emotional responses surrounding the pain that can actually enhance the pain-related activity itself. And another example of a treatment would be meditation, which has a long track record of reducing perceived pain in people. Does it reduce perceived pain or does it reduce pain? If you had a long-time group of meditators have this heat test, would they have a somewhat different brain response than somebody who just walked off the street and had kind of normal anxiety and stress responses and not meditative ones? All right. So the question of, you know, meditation reduces reported pain. Um, and which systems of the brain does it affect? And that's exactly the question that we're asking in one of the follow-up studies to this one. You really are going to bring meditators in. We've run the study. We're an- analyzing the results now. <laughs> well, can you give a sneak preview or do you have to wait? I have to wait. <laughs> no, we don't. We want to wait for the, the final uh, analysis before we are sure and, and we can, you know, stake our claim in public. Yeah. <laughs> How soon will that be? You get the paper submitted in the next few months, I hope. Good luck on that. And a few, what is the meditation word, ohms. A few ohms in favor of your study. Thank you. Thanks to Shelley for that report. Tor Weger is the director of the Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Colorado Boulder.
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender, who is also our engineer today. Additional contributions by Chip Granditz. Joel Parker is the executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to the howonearthradio.org website and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Joel Parker.